So our first Sunday of the month, we're um, getting out of 1 Samuel for a minute. And this year, uh, at the beginning of the year, we decided to, to call it the year of rejoicing. We spent almost a year and a half last year in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really all about suffering. So we thought we needed a break, and let's talk on the first Sunday every month, let's talk about rejoicing in the Lord and look at passages that talk about having joy in the Lord, um, and all just the, the myriad passages that uh, speak to us, that not just encourage us, but actually command us to rejoice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is, one of my, this is one of my favorite ones. I saved it for today, uh, for the beginning of our morning services. Uh, and so now would you please stand one more time, out of respect for the reading of God's Word as we read together from Philippians 4, 4 through 8. This is God's holy and inerrant Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the encouragement it gives us and the training in righteousness that it gives us, Lord. But even more than that, we praise you for the clear picture of Jesus, our champion, that it gives us every week, Lord. So we pray uh, that as you encourage us today through the word, that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, One of the more uh, unfortunate, one of the more unknown tragedies of the so-called Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles uh, was that when... Uh, when people received the, the gift of speaking in tongues, at first people honestly believed that they had been given uh, the gift of known human languages. People honestly believed that they had been given the ability to speak Chinese. And there were a lot of families that got on freighters and left everything and went to foreign countries only to find out that they had not. And that they were now stuck in a foreign country, unable to speak the language without anyone around them. The tragedy, uh, that was the tragedy of it. That's a very hard way to learn uh, your theology of the Holy Spirit. To the credit of most of those families, they ended up staying and doing the hard work of learning the language of the country that they ended up in and continued on as missionaries and able to, were able to do great work in, in spreading the gospel once they had got there. But they had to go through the hard work of learning language the old-fashioned way. And I'm feeling this, I feel this myself, especially felt it this year uh, as I went, to, I went to China last month for two weeks to teach a class. And I so 
desperately wanted to be able to speak Mandarin. Uh, maybe not to be able to teach theology in Mandarin. That's probably a few years off. But I thought, you know, I thought maybe I could just at least learn conversational level. And so I started scouring Amazon and the internet for every like new technological development that would teach me how to be completely fluent in Mandarin in three months. There's a book, actually books by that title, Fluid in Any Language in Three Months. And so I started, I had the audio tapes, and I ended up learning basically how to say hello, thank you, and I am an American uh, in three months. So <laughs> better nothing, but it certainly wasn't fluent, right? And the point is, the point I'm trying to make is most of us know that some things like learning a language or learning how to play an instrument or something like that just takes effort and time, a.k.a. it takes discipline. Nobody, I hope none of us, well, I would be tempted to do this, but ultimately none of us would respond to an ad that promised to teach you how to play piano in one hour. You might go to a 10-minute oil change, but you're not going to go to a 20-minute piano lesson if they're promising to teach you to play piano in 20 minutes because we know that to have the freedom to master piano, it requires a sustained discipline of practice. And yet, almost every one of us probably would believe or would say or would expect that we should be able to master the virtue of joy without any practice at all. That it should just come. That it should just be there. Um, and that's because we are all closet romantics. We believe in the, it, when it comes down to it, we all believe in, the, in the, uh, the purity of our hearts and that beauty and peace and light would flow out from us if only the evil of the world weren't pressing in. <laughs> but the reality is that's, uh, that's not true. We think, or we're tempted to think, or the world around us tries to make us think that joy is just something that happens to us by our circumstances. We're completely out of control of it. Uh, we have no more control over rejoicing than we do lamentation. Those are reactions to external stimuli, and we just have to roll with it when it happens. But the Bible says something different. It says that joy, rejoicing, should be the default condition of the Christian life. Now, look, it says, I'm not saying that there won't be any lamentation. I'm not saying there won't be periods of deep sadness. We live in a fallen world, and that curse is going to touch you in deep places that is going to cause pain. Uh, But God commands us and says that it's possible that even in those moments of deep pain to have an even deeper level of rejoicing. If we, if we really understand what he means when he says rejoice. And so he says that we can. In fact, what he says, what this says is that we are commanded uh, by God to practice the discipline of joy. And then in this passage, he gives us this super practical step-by-step instructions about how to do that. And so this is really, I think, in my mind, God's how-to manual on rejoicing, where he teaches us uh, that in every anxious moment of life, 
God wants us to rejoice in the presence of Christ and to practice the discipline of joy. And that's the big idea. In every anxious moment of life, God wants us to rejoice in the presence of Christ and to practice the discipline of joy. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, in every anxious moment of life. There's two big overarching commands in this. Rejoice always and be, and, and be anxious for nothing. Let's look at the anxious one first. Paul says, don't be anxious for anything. Now, when you read that, do you, what do you think? <laughs> do you think, man, I read that, and I'm like, somebody needs to give Paul a reality check. Uh, for real, because life has its anxious moments. Amen? We were uh, in our, our, the birth of our second daughter, Victoria. There was uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the, uh, the checkups, it found that her heartbeat was just dropping out for no apparent reason. And so they sent us to the ironically named no stress test where they hook you up to all these monitors and you sit there not stressing, waiting for your baby's heart to stop beating. And that continued throughout all the pregnancy. And then during the delivery, uh, we were concerned when there were 15 or 16 medical personnel in the delivery room with us, which didn't happen with our first kid. That was our clue. Uh, And when Victoria finally, and we lost her heartbeat for a moment or two during the delivery, and uh, and then finally when she came out, we figured it out. She was deep purple and the cord was wrapped around her neck twice and basically every time she moved in a certain way she was choking herself out those were anxious anxious moments for us it was in the middle of seminary Uh, we gave nisa gave birth i think a few hours after my last final in seminary those were anxious moments everyone has those that's not i don't think what paul's talking about here There's other ways um, that anxiety is used. In fact, there's there's three basic ways the Bible talks about anxiousness in in the New Testament. The first sense is what kind of I just described, is that compassionate sense of deep concern for another person like we had for little Victoria when she was in the womb. And Paul himself admits to having that kind of anxiety. In, in, uh, In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Man, I know exactly what he means by that. Pastor life. Just knowing about everybody's problems in the church and staying up all night praying about it and being in distress. Paul was anxious, not just for his own persecution, but anxious for all of the churches that he had care over. So I don't think he's talking about that. There's two other ways that talk about use the same word to talk about being anxious. The first one uh, is to worry over the cares of the world. There's a whole section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, one of Jesus' main uh, dialogues in Matthew chapter 6. It says, Do not be anxious for what you eat, uh, for what you drink, for your body, for your clothing. Don't run after those things like the Gentiles. And so there's a sense where we can be worrying over and stressed out, really, over the success icons 
that we desperately want to be able to display to our neighbors. You feel me on that? Yeah. And so that's idle stress. It's worrying about our personal favorite God substitute, whether or not we're going to get it set up correctly, whether or not it's going to properly operate, and then whether or not it's going to fail us. A lot of stress and anxiety in that. The second one uh, uh, is, is my favorite, or the second part of using, or the second way that we use anxiousness in the New Testament uh, is one of the definitions of the world is this, and tell me if you relate, being worried about things that probably won't ever happen anyways. Uh, that's, my, that's our current specialty. That's my current specialty. I spent the first half of my life specializing in that first kind of anxiety. Uh, and then after God rescued me from that, now we're, we've become very adept at worrying about things that are never going to happen anyways. Our oldest daughter, Han, I was having trouble with some spelling uh, she was getting six out of eight, five out of eight on her spelling test, and all of a sudden we were like, what does this mean? Uh, she's not very smart. She's going to have to go to trade school. What are we going to do with Hannah? And then all of a sudden we just like, we, you know, after a week or two of that, we were like, wait a minute. She's seven. <laughs> we can relax. And instead we just started working with her a little bit more on her homework, and lo and behold, she pulled her grades into eight out of eight, and she's like a master speller now. But there were a few dangerous weeks at our house where we were concerned that Hannah was uh, not going to be able to go to college, and then what would people think of us, and it was some anxious moments. <laughs> so look, why not? Why does God command us not to be anxious? A couple of good reasons. The first one is that when we're unduly worried, when we're worried about stuff that's probably not going to happen anyways in the future, really the heart issue behind that, what we're saying to God is, I don't trust you. What we're saying to God is, look, I know you've taken care of me in the past. I know you're taking care of me now, but I just don't trust that you're going to come through for me on these super important things in the future. Or the variant of that, that you're going to come through in some way that's probably, I'll intellectually admit, is better, but it's not what I want. And I'm scared. I'm scared. But look, God is trustworthy. The cross forever settled the question of whether or not God was trustworthy and good. A God who would die for us, the go- a God who would die for his people is by definition trustworthy and good. And so God wants us to trust him, to not have that lack of faith so that we'll be blessed in putting and leaning into him instead of our favorite success icons to display to our neighbors so that we feel safe. Second is, is that when we worry over the cares of the world... It is, it's really, it's discontent in God's providence for us. And so the heart issue behind it is we're telling God, what you've done for me is not enough. What you've done for me is not good enough. But that's not true either. What God has done for us, (laughs) winning uh, the new heavens and the new earth, making us heirs with Christ over all things, forgiving our sins and promising us an everlasting righteousness and also 
even here and now, shaping us from glory to glory into the image of Christ, that is enough. That's enough. Yeah? I think that's enough. So we can, we can be cool with that, right? <laughs> so it's ingratitude. God doesn't want us to be in gratitude. He wants us to be grateful because gratitude produces joy. Uh, and on top of all that, look, um, putting it all together, on top of that, doing that, it makes you stressed out. And God doesn't want his people to be stressed out. In those anxious moments of life, he doesn't want us to stress out. Instead, he wants us to practice and, and learn how to rejoice in the presence of Jesus. That's the second part. First part is that in every anxious moment of life, second part, God wants us to rejoice in the presence of Jesus. Here's the second, second big command. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Not sometimes. Not when things are going good. In the Greek, always means always. In case you're wondering. So how do you... What does that even mean? Or how are we supposed to do that, really? Um, one, of the, one of the nasty side effects of my former way of life before I came to Christ and what I used to do was that I had nasty, awful, violent nightmares for years after I came uh, to faith, after I was um, delivered from drug addiction and, and the whole life that went with it. Um, I mean, awful, awful, violent nightmares where then I would end up either homeless or alone uh, and without anyone in the world and, and terrified in my dreams. Um, remarkably, the, do- the birth of our first daughter, Hannah, was really the end of those nightmares for me. The minute she was born, from then on, when I would have those nightmares, I would all of a sudden, in the dream, remember, I have a wife, I have a family, I have a home, I belong somewhere in my dream, and the dream would switch to me, like trying to search for them and find where I had to go. And then I would wake up, and I would be in my bed, in my home, safe, surrounded by the people who loved and cared for me. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, the Lord is at hand. He is trying to gently wake us up out of the, the, the dream of, of our materialistic mindset to see the bigger spiritual reality that we lived in. We are convinced uh, that because we can't see Jesus, that he's not here. We know he's somewhere. I mean, we all believe that, right? But he's somewhere way far away from here. Don't you, it doesn't feel like that? But that's not true. Jesus is really even more present with us than he was with the apostles. How is that? Well, when it says, Paul says, the Lord is at hand, there's really two ways that we might take that. Some theologians think this means uh, that, God, that Jesus is close in time. And basically, so it's saying, when it says, it says rejoice, or the Lord is at hand, it means Jesus is coming back soon. And that's possible. It might say that. John, 
In John 16, one of the most beautiful parts of John's gospel in 16th chapter, Jesus talking to the disciples and he's saying, in just a little while, you won't see me. And then in just a little while, you'll see me again. And when that happens, no one will ever take your joy from you again. And what he's doing in that passage is he is giving us his eternal perspective. He's importing it into our time-bound consciousness where it seems so long to us before we're going to be with the Lord. But Jesus is saying, hey man, considering all eternity and what I see from where I see it, you're already here in just a little while. So chill. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be stressed out. You can rejoice in that. Come what may before you knew it, before you know it, you're going to be with me. That's how quickly he says we will be with him. And maybe that's true, right? Uh, but more likely is that he's talking about rejoice. Jesus is present with us now. How is he present? Look, Matthew, uh, last thing Jesus told his disciples, the very last thing he said to them, probably an important thing, was he said, the last thing he told the disciples was, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that, I don't think, was just sentiment, right? And when we say, when I say, I'll, I'll be with you in spirit, that means I'll be thinking of you and praying with you. But when Jesus says, I will be with you in spirit, he's talking about a whole different thing. He's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant being the medium through which Jesus is now ever-present with us here now in fullness. We have the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within us. We are all connected by that. Uh, And what that means is that is the medium, like an aqueduct, like a conduit through which Jesus is present with us. And what is he doing? He is transforming us. Listen to this passage. It links all those things together. Jesus, the Spirit, and transforming us into glory. This is from Paul. Also says this in Corinthians. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Boom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord... He has freed our minds to understand and meditate upon God's beauty, are being transformed by that experience into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Front end, back end, it says the same thing. Jesus, present with us through the power of the Spirit, helping us open our minds to meditate on the beauty of the Lord and through that he is transforming us incrementally into higher and higher stages of glory. We don't talk, that's talking about Christ's ascension and what we call Christ's session in heaven where he as our high priest is interceding for us, is praying for us, is pouring out his power upon his people. We don't talk about that nearly Enough. Jesus, as our high priest, we are actively hooked up to him through these aqueducts of spirit power, and he is, in fact, shaping us to be more like Jesus.
so we can relax. We got that going for us. And what does this ultimately enable us to do? A lot, but one thing this enables us to do, because that's true of us, it enables us to have the power to practice the discipline of joy. That's the last part. To practice the discipline of joy. So here again, the command. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And it's a command. It's an imperative verb. He's not, it's not a suggestion. It's not, you should do this. It's God commanding us to do that. And how, so how, how can you command someone to rejoice? How do you command someone to have an emotional feeling? Well, this is what, this is what it's talking about. Here, this is a quote from Tim Keller, one of our pastors in New York City. It's from a book called Counterfeit Gods that we read last night as part of our, our men's group. He says, listen to this. This is what he talk, he, gives, he explains to us what rejoicing means. He says, rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until... Your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. And so rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. You already saying? We think we're supposed to like go in and like dig the sin out of our hands or, or, you know, basically behavior modification, make ourselves behave differently on the outside, but on the inside, our heart's still the same. But he's saying that's not it. He's saying, you know, He's saying you, you rejoice by increasing your capacity to meditate on the aesthetic beauty of God. Now, that's not what the invisible God looks like, right? We tend to wrap beauty in a small package and think about physical beauty. That's talking about God, who he is, and his attributes and his moral character. Everything about him is beautiful, we talk a lot about that at ResPres because rejoicing really equals our ability to meditate on the beauty of God. David says this, Psalm 27, one of my favorite songs, one thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and meditate upon his beauty. Why is David asking that one thing? It's a lot of things that David could ask for. Because he knows that from that, from that flow these streams of joy and rejoicing. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't happen in an hour. There's no classes. One hour rejoicing meditation class (laughs) to get it. It takes a steady stream. It takes a steady stream 
uh, practice, dare I say, a steady discipline of practice, not punishment discipline, training discipline. You want the freedom to play piano. You discipline yourself over time to learn how to play it. If you want to be joyful, you discipline yourself over time by practicing the things that God gives us. And he right here gives us three steps to having joy. Now, usually if you hear a preacher say that, run. (laughs) But Paul says it here. He gives us three things to to practice and discipline ourselves in that produces our and cultivates our ability to meditate on the beauty of God so that the things that our, our hearts have a death grip on become less and less appealing to us until we finally let them go and, and turn to the beauty of Christ. He says three things, humility, practice of humility, practice of prayer, and the practice of meditating on God's word. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to all. The word reasonableness there, it really means don't insist on your rights. Be forbearing. Don't be the guy or the girl that just insists on getting everything your way and, and having every one of your rights. But instead, be willing to give those things up and have this attitude of really emptying yourself considering yourself more important or less important than the other, consider the other more important than yourself is what Paul says in the second chapter of this book. And to empty yourself of what you think you must have and just trust God to provide what you need. That's really what reasonableness means there. And that is humility. Humility is emptying ourselves of all of our corrupt desires so that God can fill us in power. The second thing, prayer, in verse 6, it says, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's two, the supplication means asking for what we need. And it means anything. To, to, to go to God in, in honesty, where you're at and say, God, this is what I need from you. This is what I so desperately need to you. But then the second part is be content with what he gives you. That's the hard part, right? Trust him. Be content with what he gives you. And this builds faith. Faith produces joy. Uh, and the second half of that is to, is to praise God and give, and, in, in, in thanksgiving, giving the giving of thanks, to constantly bring to mind and let your mind uh, meditate on all of the good and beautiful things that God has given you. Uh, we, talk, we have a ladle class that we teach, a Bible study to ladle ministry, the homeless community, on Wednesday that me and Lisa we co-teach on it. And last week, she said this, this quote that was, it was beautiful. And she said, the greater our pride the more irrational our anger at God, really. It makes us focus on the few things that we can't have and forget the many things we do have. It makes us trade in our joy for misery. Practicing the discipline of thanksgiving and praise to God helps us remember the myriad wonderful things that we do have and helps us to not worry so much about the couple of things that we can't have. 
And the third one, verse 8, is, is meditation. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That means meditate. It really means to let your mind dwell upon these things. The same thing David asked for, that he would be able to dwell in the temple of the Lord all the days of his life and meditate upon the beauty of God. It means really what we might say is to fix our minds on things that are worthwhile and things that are beautiful by constantly meditating on God's word, what he has revealed to us, what is truly good and beautiful. And so when our minds when our minds are tempted to consider or buy in to lies, we meditate on God's truth. When we're tempted to do something dishonorable, we meditate on things that are worthy of honor. When we're tempted to engage in injustice, we meditate on what God has considered to be righteous. When we are considered or considering or tempted to defile ourselves, we consider and meditate on moral purity. When we are tempted by things that are repulsive, we consider what's lovely and delightful. When we're tempted by things that are wrong, we consider what's commendable. That means really meritorious. Uh, And when we are caught up in things that are inferior, we instead think about things that are excellent, which means uncommon character and worthy of praise. And as you do that, it doesn't take long before you start to notice that sin is a lie. It's dishonorable. It's defilement. It's injustice. It's repulsive. It's wrong. It's inferior. But you also can't help but notice as you study this that Jesus is the epitome of all these things. Jesus is truth. He is worthy of honor. He is righteous. He is morally pure. He is full of delight. He is meritorious. And his merit has won the victory for us so that we might have heaven forever in his name. And he is of uncommon character and worthy of praise. We remember who he is and we remember to praise him for who he is. God uses that incrementally. We meditate on the beauty of Christ. And God transforms us a little bit at a time, glory to glory, as we relax and rest in the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Amen? In every anxious moment of life, God wants us to rejoice in the presence of Christ and practice the discipline of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is beautiful. As you are, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Oh God, we, the flesh in us, our minds are so tempted.
to run after things that are not beautiful, that will not come through on their promises, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to sit in your presence, to meditate on your word, to pray, to do these things, that your spirit would empower us to do that over time, that you would grow us and change us and create in us something beautiful, not for our sake, Lord, but for the glory of your name and so that we might be ambassadors of the gospel to San Diego, Lord. Impress upon our minds and help us cultivate our ability to comprehend how truly beautiful you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.